If you brought a copy of God's Word with you, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, otherwise the script will show here in just a few moments. As we continue in this series that we began in Romans chapter 12, we're titling the Sanctification and Service of the Saint. Romans chapter 14, as we embark on a text where some would say angels fear to tread, but one I anxiously uh, arrived at and look forward to sharing with you at least the first 12 dozen verses or so as we put them up for you. That's where we're going, the first dozen verses, which is going to sort of set the tone for the next couple of weeks. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as he quotes from Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. One of the great shorthand theological statements of all time has been accredited to the 4th century patriarch Augustine. And some of you have heard it. Here it is. In essentials... Unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Of course, back in those days, charity is another word for love. If we were to look at the entire book of Romans with that quote in mind, the first 11 chapters would be the essentials. Salvation. God's salvation. Jesus Christ. Faith being the only prerequisite to salvation. God being 
overall, sovereign over all things. Those things are essential. Cardinal doctrines we can't fudge on is what essentials are. That Jesus Christ is God. That he became a man. He was fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross, rose from the dead three days later, ascended up into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, ever makes intercession for us, will come again. These are essentials. We don't fudge on those things. Now, in chapter 14, he's taking on the second part of that quote. In non-essentials, liberty. And he's dealing with Christian liberty in this passage of Scripture. But that's why he's going to conclude by saying, in all things, charity. Let the love of the brethren continue, as another writer says. There are several things just from the reading of this text that, I, that just sort of leap out to me I want to share with them as we sort of get into this passage of Scripture. The first one is Paul's objective here. His objective, and this is extremely important, if you, if you, get, if you get this, you'll get the passage. Because really, the, the whole genre of this passage goes all the way into the first seven verses or so in chapter 15. And here is the objective. Paul's objective is to extend the levels of love to the area of disagreement. And now listen to this. So that it will produce a unity without the need for uniformity. I'll give that to you again. Paul is trying to extend the levels of love amongst the brethren, okay? To, the air, to areas of disagreement, because we all are different, right? Some of you are just really different. But we're all different. We're the same on the essentials, but on some of those areas of liberty, we're, we're going we're to differentiate, and we'll have disagreement. And what he's saying here is he wants to extend the level of love to the area of, of disagreement that will produce unity without uniformity. There's nothing beautiful about uniformity. Everybody being exactly the same. That's colorless. That's bland. God wants us to show this world the stuff of Christianity that we can be we can differentiate on the peripherals in our in our walk with God and still love God and love one another. So that's the first thing I see here. And by the way, speaking of one another, there's at least four of them in this passage through chapter 15, and we'll get to those, and several others implied. Here's another thing that just comes out of the passage to me, and that is our inherent desire or the inherent problem of judging other people. That's within all of us. That's what inherent means. The truth is we just all like to judge. Amen. Isn't that true? Anybody here besides me that likes to judge? Okay, we're just good at it, aren't we? We judge things. We judge people. We judge movements. We judge churches. And yes, we even get into judging motivations. And this is where Paul is going. This is wrong. We start judging people's motives. 
I mean, just the other day, I, during Thanksgiving vacation, I had somebody, a family member, call me out for my judging somebody's motives, and I thought, God, I'm preaching on this in a couple days. And this seems to be Paul's main issue here. Are playing the role of God by attempting to judge the very motivations of others, and particularly Christians. Here's something else that just comes out of the text. You saw it. There, he gives two illustrations. Paul provides for us two present-day, that is his present-day illustrations. And those illustrations are food, certain foods, and special days. That's, by the way, the reason why we're pretty confident that he was talking particularly, not only, not solely, but particularly about Jewish converts who were hung up on foods and still are to this day. That's why we have the word kosher and, uh, and days and special days, okay? So we know that. So we're talking primarily the weak person in this passage is the newly converted Jew, but not only newly converted Jews. And... That gives way to the other observation that comes out of this. And there are two groups of people we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak. Those who are weak in the faith. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. There are several commands. One's positive out of the get-go. You know, welcome the weak. That's a positive thing. We'll get to that here in a moment. But then it gives way to several negative commands. Don't argue. Don't despise. Don't judge so, as we deal with this text this morning, these first 12 verses, I see three questions that just sort of come out of the text, just questions sort of levied to you and I that just come out of the text. And we'll add to those questions next week. Here are the questions for today, and I'll give them to you up front. Here they are. Why not welcome them if God has? Why not welcome them if God has? Here's a second question. Why judge them if God hasn't? And the third question that comes out of this passage is, why examine them if God will? So, there's the questions. Let's look at them as points, and we'll take the first one on right now. Why not welcome them if God has? Now, you see that in the very first verse. For as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. In fact, he goes on in verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has what? He's welcomed them. Hence the question. Why not welcome them if God has? So immediately we're introduced to these two people, the strong and the weak, although the word strong isn't used until the 15th chapter, but it clearly implied throughout this entire chapter, chapter 14. He says, welcome them. Welcome the weak in the faith. Uh, some of your Bibles say receive. Some of your Bibles say accept. It, the, the word welcome is an intensified verb. It, it, it carries the idea of bringing somebody into your home, bringing somebody into your society. Bring someone into your group or your association or your circle of acquaintances. The verb does not mean, quote, to tolerate. 
Because that's what we do, do we not? When somebody doesn't see things the way we see it, when we have a weak brother or somebody who deems themselves strong, whatever, somebody we differ with, we tend to just tolerate them. But the text is very strong and doesn't give us any wiggle room. It says, you welcome them. Do you do that? Listen, whoever this weak person is referred to here, you can be sure of this. He might be weak, but he's not or she's not a lesser person. Mark that down. They might be weak, but they're not a lesser person. And he says, don't quarrel. You see that word there? The word quarrel is a, another compound intense verb. It means, to, it means to thoroughly judge someone. And it carries the idea of differentiating. In fact, uh, it applied, the word was applied to lookalikes. So, you know, we, I've, I've got several grandkids and several on the way. And when they come, you know, they're a week or two old. You know, what is everybody doing? Oh, I, he looks like his daddy. No, no, he looks like his mommy. Oh, no, look at that nose. He looks like his No, no, no. And back and forth. What the? Who cares? Eventually, he's going to look like somebody. Probably himself. But that's kind of the way we, we quarrel over things that sort of look alike, but they don't look alike. We're kind of differentiated. Doesn't that happen? That's the idea here. We can laugh about it in the family, but it's not funny when it comes to spiritual matters of liberty. We tend to make them much bigger than God ever intended to make them, especially when we're dealing with peripheral matters. They're not in the center. He talks about opinions. Don't quarrel over opinions. And uh, this word implies differences where we end up having to agree to disagree, hopefully. Some of your Bibles call it disputable matters. Some of your Bibles say differing opinions. If you have a New King James, it says over doubtful things, which isn't very helpful until you remember that, that there are some things that are without a doubt, Right? We don't doubt about the deity of Jesus. We don't doubt about God being a triune God. We don't doubt that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus, alone, plus nothing. No doubt there. But these can become doubtful things. And I know that you're just dying for me to just, you know, some of you are just licking your chops over stuff I'm going to dive into. But I'm going to wait about a week for that, okay? I'm more interested in the text than the application of the text, as much as I'll try to do that as well. He's not talking about those cardinal things. You know, we could be dealing with areas of liberty. And, we'll, and, and you have to, we all have to deal with these things. And we differ over areas of entertainment, education, the use of our, one's finances, politics, language, extent of fellowship, social drinking, Tattoos, tattoos, diets, our passion for sport, and so many more things you could add to that list. These things, food, special days that Paul refers to here, are in contrast to the core, non-negotiable, cardinal doctrines, okay? Now, as I said, whoever this weaker person is, they're not a lesser person. But they are, in fact, weak. And the last I checked, that's not a good place to be. 
If you're weak, you need to be growing in your faith. So who is this weak person? Well, he's weak in faith. See, he's weak in faith. See it there? Weak in faith. That's dealing with that. The person who's weak in faith is a person whose conscience is hypersensitive to just about everything. He's, it, this, the weakness has to do with his content, has to do with his capacity, his depth of understanding of what he has in Jesus or she has in Jesus. And consequently, the person who's weak in faith is usually a restricted person, narrow person, weak in conscience person. They tend to be those who are more narrow and more legalistic in his or her approach to the Christian life. It's often a person who trusts Jesus and somebody just hands them a list of do's and don'ts and somehow or another, if you can comply with that list, you're spiritual. But in reality, you've just cemented a weak life when your life is based on a stupid list. He is sometimes a a Christian who, like myself, who've been delivered from some idolatrous religion that focuses on rituals and, and cantations and statues and all kinds of things that try to help me get to God. And I even adore or honor or reverence things and or people or personalities other than the living God. And if that's me, if you're like me, then you become maybe a little really super sensitive to anything that smacks of ritualism, right? You want you run from that like the plague because you're very sensitive to that. And you can, some of you can totally relate to this, can't you? And that's why he talks about the person with vegetables, verse 2. The person, who, the person believes he may, one person believes he may eat anything, while the pers- weak person eats only vegetables. Someone asked me the other day, who could he be talking about? Well, I think it's pretty clear he's talking about new Jewish converts. And it's clear because it's, they're not just Jews, they're Christian Jews. And they're not just Christian Jews, but Jews who have not overcome their Old Testament scruples. It, do you remember Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 8, he talked about meat that was offered to idols. Remember that passage there? Some of you have read that. And that was a big issue in those days. Some people had the freedom to do it. Ah, who cares? What's up? What, what, who cares? There's no, there's no demon dwelling in the meat. I can eat that. Sure enough, that's true. There's, the, the meat doesn't become demonic. But if you are a Jew and you were one who passionately, as much as you could possibly do, adhered to the law, and nobody could perfectly do that. That's, that, that's, that's why these Jews were being converted, because they realized they couldn't keep the law. And they realized Jesus did. That was a wonderful thing. But yet it was still kind of in their conscience, you know. You don't eat, you know, you don't honor the idols. You don't, and if you eat meat that was offered to an idol, that could maybe kind of, you know, get kind of creepy and maybe sully you somehow spiritually. And so what would happen is back in those days, these pagan temples would, you know, people would bring, they would bring their, their half a cow with them or whatever, and they'd offer these things as, a, as an offering to their pagan god. And, and the priest in the temple would, would gorge on the meat, but they couldn't eat it all. So that the leftovers would go right back to the marketplace as a way to continue to support the temple. But you could get the meat at a cut rate. The problem was if you were a highly 
scrupulized Jew, so to speak, you'd be thinking, you know, if I, some of that meat here, some of it might not be offered to an idol. Some of it might have been, maybe the reason it's on sale is it was, uh, I don't want to take the chance. Let's just buy beans, honey. Let's buy beans and carrots. That's what we're eating for lunch today. That's what's going on here. Their consciences wouldn't allow them to even take the chance, even though Paul says there's nothing inherently evil about the meat, so to speak. So that's, that's what we're dealing with here, okay? Whatever the case, they are weak, and weakness does not make them less of a Christian, just makes them highly sensitive. And it does not allow the strong person to look down or even to simply tolerate them. There are people in our midst who are struggling. You, you run into somebody who says, uh, hey, we're going to a movie this weekend. Hey, I don't go to movies. Oh, okay, hey, sorry. We, we're sensitive to them. You don't say, oh, well, we can't go to a movie. It's just PG or whatever. You, we're going to get to that in the next week about laying stumbling blocks in front of people, which is a sin to do that. The key word here in this first point where why not welcome them if God is, is welcome them. God has, so welcome them. Here's the second thing I want to point out this morning. Why judge them if God hasn't? Verse 3 says, let not the one who eats despise the one who, that's a strong word. That's a really strong word. It It means to have utter contempt for someone. Which happens, those who deem themselves strong will look at people who are weak and they'll despise them for their weakness. And he said, don't do that. That's, that's being judgmental. And some who are weak, but they don't usually consider themselves weak because they restrict themselves in all kinds of areas, they often look at the strong Christian who might take a few more liberties and they despise them. They judge them. And the word judge here is pretty much, it's a different word, but carrying the same idea. Everybody's wrong. When they start judging motives and stuff, that's what he's saying. And now before we jump into a dozen applications, of course, I just alluded to several of them a little bit ago, that come out of this discussion, I want you to turn over to chapter 15 and look at verses 5 through 7. This is, be- this is a beautiful conclusion to this. And I want to jump to that conclusion because this gets into those one another's. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Beautiful stuff. Would you agree? And this is Paul's goal. This is God's goal. This should be our goal. Namely, a kind of on earth as it will be in heaven kind of community that loves one another in spite of our differences, weaknesses, and strengths. Listen to the bleeding heart of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for his little fledgling group of apostles, knowing because he is the sovereign God of what's going to come out of this thing, how this thing's going to start unpacking itself. He starts praying for them. He starts praying for us. Watch how he prays. 
I do not ask for these only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Are you getting the point here? So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. Now, folks, I would submit to you that these are not the words of some wishy-washy, ecumenical, who cares what you believe kind of savior. These are the words of a passionate, barrier-breaking, pride-killing, king of kings and master of the universe who desires to send a reverberating message to this sin-bound, hate-filled, saber-rattling, godless world that there is a place and it is called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a place where love can overcome personal differences, personal preferences, and even at times, personal convictions. Where social and racial and economical, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, economical, even political barriers melt away in a sea of praise for the one to whom every single one of us must stand before someday and give an account of ourselves before him, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But in that day, when everybody stands before him, it won't matter where you come from, what you've done, what you've got, the stands that you've taken, whether you're strong or weak, because God will make them all stand who know him. And if you look at verse 4, you can see Paul sort of going for the jugular here. And you can even hear him raising his voice. Look at, look at verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master. He stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord, that is our, his master, the weak person's master, is able to make him stand. Paul is saying, he's not going to have to stand before you, and you're not going to have to stand before him. We're going to stand before God. Every one of us will stand before the living God. And by the way, how encouraging, huh? That last statement, that God is able to uphold that weak person and make him stand, you see that? That's a pretty cool statement if you, if you just stare at it for a little bit. It, it, listen, this is the good news. And, and a number of you need to take this to heart. Weak faith in Jesus, are you ready for this? Is still faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus is the only requirement by which we will stand in that last day. And so as he, he says, don't judge him if God hasn't. In fact, he says in verse 5, one person esteems, he gets into this day thing, one, you know, one day better than another, another esteems, all days alike. And then this very significant power statement. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Have you ever read that? Well, there you have it. Uh, those who have, have, where the history of our church comes from, some of our distinctives, we have a distinctive called individual soul liberty. It's a great doctrine, biblical doctrine, that basically says that before God, as a, as a submitted Christian to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, before God, I can make decisions on peripheral matters. Because it's before God that I'm going to have to stand. Each Christian must follow the dictates of his own conscience in matters not specifically prohibited or commanded in Scripture. By the way, the word convinced here in verse 5 is the same word as is referred to Abraham back in Romans 4 in verse 20 and 21 where it says Abraham was not, didn't waver when it came to faith, but was fully convinced that what God has promised he was able to do. Remember going through that? Fully convinced. Same word. You know what that tells me? That tells me whatever convincing this is, that he's talking about, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Whatever convincing, whatever this means, it's the same level of faith you have to have to be saved. So when you talk about, if you, if you deem yourself as a strong person, if you deem yourself as a strong Christian, you need to ask yourself, do I have this same level of faith when it comes to the things that I, I have liberty to do? Because if you do, then you're going to have freedom to do it with the governors that we're going to see as we get to the latter part of this passage of Scripture, keeping your other brother and sister in mind. Now, granted, our consciences are tricky things, aren't they? They're tricky things because, for one thing, we're, we're sinful people. We, we just, our whole, everything right down to our DNA has been corrupted. And just because you know Jesus as your Savior doesn't mean everything just sort of goes away in that you don't struggle with decision-making. Our consciences are kind of like computers. Whatever you stick in them is what's going to come out. And then, you know, fortunately, God himself has input things into our database, like the moral law of God. We saw that in Romans chapter 2. That's all there. That's intrinsic. Just the, Romans chapter 1, we believe, everybody believes in God. Not everybody's saved. Not everybody's a Christian. But everybody born into this world has an innate, innate belief that God exists. That's what Romans 1 says. And everybody has this moral code placed within. That's why you can go to every culture anywhere on the face of this earth and you'll find the same set of laws operating on some level. I'm talking about the negative laws. You don't, you, you find even in the darkest places, it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to rape. It's wrong to steal other people's stuff. Where did that come from? God puts it in them. So, and if somebody doesn't believe that in some pagan culture somewhere in Papua New Guinea, it's because they have been, they've been, their whole culture's been turned on its head. But the conscience continues to cry out that way. That's why, you know, for 70 years in the Soviet Union, they pretended that God didn't exist. And then in 1989, when the walls came down, what happened? Sudden interest in spiritual things. Why? Because it was always there. That's why. That's the reason why. But at the end of the day, the, listen to this. 
at the end of the day, the clear mandates of Scripture trump our conscience. Okay? Because even though God has given all of us a conscience, our consciences get screwed up. That's why we need the Word of God to realign ourselves, right? That's, this is the, the, the black and whites of Scripture are non-negotiable. We just, uh, we agree with it, we submit to it, we submit to the Lordship of Christ and His Word. So when someone claims to be a Christian, comes to me and says they have no issue with living immorally or living a party life of drunkenness or drugs, I take them to the Word of God and the responsibilities as the temple of the living God, and I see how they respond. Does the Spirit of God convict them? And oftentimes he does, and what happens, oh, they see, they, I see this, and they begin to walk away from that lifestyle. But other times I see individuals say, eh, what, you know, whatever, I mean, okay, I'm good for you. All that tells me is God is not operating in his life. He's not regenerated that conscience, and you still need to be saved. But again, Paul is not writing about clear biblical mandates in this passage. He's referring to areas of liberty. And uh, that, that the strength or weakness of your conscience will determine the way in which you respond. And by the way, I do want to note something else here that is very intriguing to me. In verses 6 and following. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. This is the weak person who's really hung up on days. The one who eats, and watch this, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, this is the weak person again, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is very interesting to me. He's saying, he's talking about both strong and weak, and they're both honoring, they're both thanking God. This is very intriguing to me. Paul is making an amazing fact here, and you need to grab a hold of this. People who disagree with you on debatable matters, gray areas, and the like, can actually glorify God in their positions. Is that a shocker to you? Because they don't have the same position as you? They might be weaker, they might be stronger, but it, they may very well be honoring God. Paul here is addressing, by way of confrontation, the natural bent that you and I have to judge the lives and motivation of others, in, especially Christians. And he's saying that on both sides of Christianity, strong or weak, on both sides, there are those who love Jesus, and whether they do or they don't, in the area that you have liberty or don't have liberty, they may very well be doing it to the honor of the Lord. That's a humbling thought, isn't it? That means even the people that I don't see eye to eye with are truly, a lot of them are truly walking with God and vice versa. Lord willing. Paul's beef is with those on both sides of the Christian liberty issue who are more bent on judging harshly those who do not see things as they do. Is that you? He is condemning the harsh, judgmental spirit that surfaces on both sides. With the, with the strong who have liberty and a clear conscience to exercise liberty, yet look down on the weak. As well as the weak who stand in judgment 
of the strong for what seems to them to be a very cavalier, even lawless kind of a life. Well, it's lawless if it's against the word of God, but if it's, if it's an area that the Bible isn't explicit on, he's telling us to love. He's telling us to show unity. Vance Havner once said, it's true that God sees the heart, but man cannot see the heart. He sees the clothing and judges accordingly. <laughs> true enough. I had an experience very early in my Christian life. In fact, I, I've often contemplated writing a book that, that would just deal with these primary things that God taught me in the early days that have never left me. And one of them was in this very area, even though I have to be candid and even humble and say, I didn't obey it. And I found myself in that camp, considering myself strong, looking down on the weak. And in reality, as I look back, maybe I was weak and uh, whatever. I was, I was being judgmental, that's for sure. But this one instance, I was just within the first year of being a Christian. I went to my brother's church and he had a Jewish guy whose name was Steve Herzig, works for Friends of Israel, Gospel Ministries, saved Jew, who did a setter Passover meal. And it was just fascinating. Some of you have probably seen things like this, and I was all over that thing, brand new Christians, gobbling everything up, you know. And I knew he was from a very straight-laced, very conservative ministry, one that I sort of aligned myself with. And I also knew of another ministry called Jews for Jesus. Some of you have heard that too. That's a Christian ministry, a little broader, a little more charismatic, a little more wild on the fringes. So I wanted to find out what he thought about them. Well, unbeknownst to me, Steve was a raving Los Angeles Laker fan. And the championships were going on. And this was in the days of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. He couldn't wait to get home from the church to watch the championship. So I was sitting next to him as he's watching this game, Bird and Johnson going at each other, and I'm sitting there next to him asking him all kinds of questions. And he's really getting annoyed with me. I could tell. So I, but I said to him, hey, hey, Steve, hey, 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 what's, what's your take on Jews for Jesus? Because I figured, yeah, he'd get after this. And he's sitting there watching the game, and he goes, uh, um, they do their thing. We do ours. Right back to the game. Now, granted, he was just trying to brush me off. But he actually taught me something there. That wasn't something to get hung up on. Were there differences? Yes. Were there fellowship issues? Of course. But he wasn't going to get hung up on those things. They do their thing. We do ours. It's interesting to me that Paul lays down something very powerful and very theological. He, he goes for the, the theology of theology, the doctrine of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his lordship over us. In verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. We, the we is the strong and the weak. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. And watch this. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living. Why does he lay down this strong foundational declaration? And here's the reason. Listen carefully. Because Jesus is Lord of the person before he's Lord of the preference. Now, hopefully he's both. The strong person, 
The truly strong person makes Jesus not just Lord over himself, not, doesn't just submit to the lordship of Jesus in his own life, but he makes Jesus Lord over his preferences as well, those areas that we enjoy, liberties and whatever. Jesus is Lord of the person before he's Lord over the preference. This is the reason why he said earlier, he, he can make that weak person stand and he will make them stand at the last day, which is very encouraging. Remember, there's a time when Jesus was, his disciples were going through the grain fields. It was a Saturday. It was a Sabbath. They're, picking, they're plucking grain. Matthew 12 talks about this. The Pharisees were all over that because that was work. Because they had to, you know, they were husking this thing, taking the, taking the grain out of the husk. And that was considered work. And Jesus confronted them in their hypocrisy. And then he said this very significant statement. He said, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I'll be the judge of liberties. Thank you very much. And so the question here is, when it comes to you who consider yourself strong, or you who may even be humble enough to consider yourself as a weak person, why judge them? The other. If God hasn't. It's a good question. Comes right out of the text. Here's the last thing. Why examine them if God will? Look at verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. And so each of us will give an account of himself to God. So if your fellow brother or sister in Christ has Jesus as their master and they are living to honor Jesus and if before Jesus, like you, they will stand and again, like you, they will give an account of their life to Jesus who has promised to make them stand, in the end, why are you playing the role of Jesus? That's what he's asking. Why are you playing the role of Jesus? Why examine them if God will someday, right? Basically, he's saying, need I remind you, we will all, and the Greek word all literally means, are you ready for this? It means all. That's what it means. All stand before the judgment seat of God. Listen, there is coming a day for all of you who worry about the liberty somebody else takes, the weaknesses somebody else is struggling with, the scruples they're dealing with, there's coming a day when no injustice, no self-serving motivation, no pride-filled life will any longer be hidden. It's called the judgment seat of God, and everybody's going to show up there. Everybody. And while not the same as the final judgment that awaits everyone who doesn't know Jesus is called the great white throne judgment. 
And those of you here who don't know Jesus, that's the judgment that awaits you. And the end of that judgment is the lake of fire, which is eternal. The judgment seat of God isn't the same. It's a different judgment, okay? The bema seat of Christ is what it's called in another passage of Scripture. And even though it's not that final judgment, listen carefully to what I'm saying to you. It will nevertheless be a fearful judgment. Any of this talk and theological discussion that the judgment seat of Christ is just an award ceremony. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It doesn't even come near with the scripture. It will be an awesome moment. And there will be trembling, I think even to some degree, possibly frightening to those of you who name the name of Jesus and just sort of stumble through life in a careless, carefree, cavalier way and yell, oh yeah, I love Jesus, but whatever. I love myself a little bit more. This is going to be an awful time. The Bible, I think there's going to be intense sadness at this judgment. The book of Revelation, John tells us that God's going to have to wipe away tears. Have you ever read that? Wipe away tears. And I think there'll be enough tears to probably fill up a few lakes. What do you think? I think the judgment seat of God will produce enough tears to fill a few lakes. In fact, why not have a lake like that? I'm thinking God should do that. I mean, we know there's going to be a lake of fire for those unbelievers who go there. Why not? In, I mean, we've all seen beautiful lakes, pristine, mirror-like lakes. Why not have a lake in heaven? We could call it the lake of tears. It'd be an ugly lake like this one. And we just sort of, it'd be there for all eternity for you to go back and look at it and be reminded of all those awful motivations, those prejudices and those judgments that you made and those missed opportunities. They're all just the tears in this ugly lake. Don't you think that'd be a great idea to have that for eternity? No. I agree with you, no. A thousand times no. No reminders of our past failures? No, for two reasons. One, because God says he's going to wipe away our tears, not preserve them. And here's the other reason. Because in eternity, Jesus doesn't want you to spend eternity beholding your failures. He wants you to spend eternity beholding him. And he prayed as much in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said in John 17, 24, he said to his father, he said, Father, I desire that they whom you've given to me may be with me where I am, watch this, to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me from the foundation of the world. This is what Jesus desires. He's not going to have those of you who love him. He's not going to have those of you who've trusted him, whether you're weak or you're strong. He's not going to have you, and be thankful for this, he's not going to have you looking at a lake of tears for the rest of eternity, regretting all the things you could have done. Although there will be a moment because the tears will have to be wiped away. 
He doesn't want you to behold your failures. He wants you to behold himself. And that is what we'll do. And between now and then, as we behold him and are continuously sanctified and transformed into that image, then we'll be able to see others a little clearer. We'll be able to love, not just tolerate, welcome our brother and sister in Jesus, regardless of where they're at in their walk with Christ. But if you're going to behold him there, you need to behold him here. And some of you still need to do that. It should humble you that God would come and die for you. It should humble your heart to think that God would take upon himself all of your sins and die on a cross and then rise victoriously from the grave, all for you. That should humble you. If you've never received Jesus by beholding him for salvation, do so today. And if you have, remember, let the love of the brethren continue. And let the tent pegs of love be extended to a place where you can live in harmony, in unity with your brother and sister, even though you differ with them in certain areas. Not uniformity. That will bring glory to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful today that we can look into your word, into this passage of scripture that deals with the harmony of the brethren and confronts us in our judgmental ways. Forgive us, God. I pray that's a prayer for all of us to ask for forgiveness for being judgmental, looking down on the weaker brother or looking down on the one who considers themselves strong. Instead, look over and realize that ground is level at the cross. And you desire for us, Lord, to love one another with a passionate love that we would be perfectly one. What a prayer. Oh, make it happen here at Sailorville Church, Lord. So that we can have differences and even honest debate at, from time to time, but always ending up loving the brethren because this sends such a reverberating message to the world. There is a place. It's called your church where differences and preferences and even convictions at times can melt away in a sea of praise to the one who loved us and to whom we will stand before someday. Help us to keep that in mind, Lord, we pray. And then I pray for those who've never trusted Jesus in this, past, in this place right here. And you know who you are. Your heart's still cold, but maybe you feel a kindling. You feel some igniting, some sense of, I want this. I want to trust Jesus. Would you just do it? Trust him today? And by the way, Lord, before we conclude, thank you so much for not, for not telling us you're going to have some lake of tears up there. <laughs> Thanks for wiping them away, not preserving them. We're glad for that. You're preserving them now because you love us. We know you keep them in a bottle. The scripture tells us that. But you'll wipe them away someday, Lord, as we 
melt in a sea of praise and glory. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.